0: spiritual authority. In our world today, it's a fraught topic that evokes strong reactions from many different sides. What is it? Who has it? How is it supposed to work? And how should we respond when that authority is abused? I ask all these questions and more in my interview today with David Mathis. David serves as a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, as an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and as senior teacher and executive editor at DesiringGod.org. He's also the author of Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders, from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway podcast.
1: Thank you, man. Always great to talk to you.
0: So you open your book by noting something that I'm sure many of our listeners have noticed themselves. Maybe they even feel it themselves. And it's that we live in an age that is increasingly cynical and skeptical about the idea of leadership. And uh, you say that some of that cynicism is for good reasons, and some of it has maybe more to do with just the mood of our times. So I'd love for you to unpack both of those things for us, maybe starting with the good reasons. What are some of the good reasons for our ambivalence about leadership today?
1: Well, Matt, you know, we got access to a lot of stories these days through social media, through our various media. And there has been, the the tide has changed on if there's a bad leader story, whether the, the social pressure is to suppress it or whether the social pressure is to now speak truth to power, you know. <laughs> now you've got something yeah. to share and something to go big time with. So there's been a, a sea change there in in many circles, and so we have access to a lot of stories. and And every human on this planet, <laughs> there is there's one human, the God Man, who's perfect. But everyone on this planet is a sinner. And so, human, merely human leaders, leaders other than Jesus, are going to be sinful. The best of leaders are imperfect and sinful. And there's a lot of really bad, immature, even evil leaders. And so, there are good reasons for us to to be careful and not treat our leaders as perfect or treat our leaders as Jesus. This is this is a calling for Christians that we know a clear difference between the great shepherd of the sheep, who is our Lord, who yeah. is our savior, who is our supreme treasure, and the leaders with their maturity and their plurality that he gives us in the local church, for which we can be thankful. And yet we know they are not Jesus. And we always have that yeah. distinction in our minds as Christians.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was I did a quick Google search just for the word pastor and was looking for news articles that had that word in the in the headline. Mm -hmm. And it was surprising how many stories, to your point about how prevalent this information is today, how many stories there were of pastoral failing, pastoral abuse, pastoral misconduct, all kinds of things that are just constantly popping up uh, on our news feeds, uh, on the local news, in their newspapers. Uh, So it does feel like there is a a media environment that makes it all the easy, all the more easy for us to hear about these things. Um, but do you think that 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 message uh, of uh, past we need to recognize what good leadership looks like, and also recognize what bad leadership looks like? Is that something that you think that maybe some Christians do need to hear and kind of be more attuned to? Uh, have you ever have you seen Christians that you would say? who maybe don't want to recognize that as a reality right now.
1: Well, I, I think much more than either the hour these days, and the world is so complex. Who am I or anyone uh, in given <laughs> flesh to survey the landscape? and think they see it all, but uh, the, the limited number of circles I see, uh, the, the big threat is not that people are largely naive about the sinful mm. nature of their leaders. It's the other <laughs> I mean, uh, especially in our le- in our media, in our social media, we are so aware of, on the edge about uh, any leadership failures. I mean, we see in good shepherds, we see wolves' underwear sometimes. You think this this must be a wolf, you know, hiding that this this guy must be really good because he seems like such a, a a mature, biblical leader. But I know he must be a wolf down deep underneath. I mean, there is that kind of suspicion among people. Yeah, and into that milieu. The scriptures and the New Testament speak a very clear word about the God-appointed goodness of human leaders, imperfect human leaders, but God's word and particularly the New Testament and the elder qualifications in First Timothy three and in Titus chapter one provide some flashpoints of maturity characteristics, you know, character traits that would uh, embody those who are to lead in the church, and those leaders are given. Ephesians 4 says, from the risen Christ as gifts to his church, the risen Christ who is building his church. He is Lord of the church and groom of the church, and he is gifting his local churches with leaders. And typically, it, it's not a single leader. He typically gifts his church with a team of leaders. And that's one thing we can talk about some here, Matt, at some point about, about the, that principle of plurality and how every local church instance that we have in the New Testament uh, bears evidence of a plurality of, of pastors and elders. And so this is a good gift from the risen Christ. He knows better than we do that the human leaders he gives us are not perfect. They are sinners. They are in a renovation of their own soul being brought about by the Holy Spirit. And through faith, and he gives those leaders and provides the checks and balances. It's Americans love to talk about checks and balances for the last 250 years, the checks and balances of plurality, of that leadership happening in a team. And this is it's important in our age here in, in 2022, 21st century, that we recognize leadership as a gift. And we may feel like it's an assault on the self we have been told in a thousand ways and in subtle ways that we're the masters of our own soul and that we want to choose what we want to choose and have the uh, the great almighty self and leadership is often confronts that we like to make our own calls rather than defer to the wise leadership of others and so uh, there is a challenge to the self in the reception of leadership from christ is good and that's a challenge we need in our times
0: yeah. What would you say to the Christian who hears that and would and acknowledge, yeah, in an ideal world, um, Scripture does portray leadership, spiritual leadership, as a good thing. And I see that that is valuable. Uh, but they might say, but there's just too much evidence right now. There's too, much, too many examples of leaders uh, not having that accountability, not being surrounded by a plurality of others who are helping to kind of keep them uh, on the straight and narrow, so to speak. And so it actually is right that we be focused right now, that the actual need of the hour right now is to kind of fix the broken culture of leadership that exists rather than worry too much about people kind of just uh, being too critical of leadership itself. How would you respond to something like that?
1: I think I would, I may start by asking some uh, personal and local questions. <laughs> the personal one would be, uh, what proportion of your inputs is media as opposed to God's word? Because if, if it's just a quick kind of concession, oh, yeah, God's word says that. Uh, and I got a couple quick minutes today for God's word. And then I'm going to spend hours with my ears open to the voice of the world. Then I'd, I'd want to talk about proportion and priority of the voice of the risen Christ through his prophets and apostles in the word by the spirit. So I, I want to talk about that aspect. That's the personal side. It, what what are your influential sources? And that gets into social media thing, the news thing, uh, the the national bent over real life, uh, life that you can affect. The local question then would be about a local church. Like why Why would you think you can pretend to fix something nationally or internationally that is far more complicated <laughs> than you can see from your stream of voices? without first attending to what God has given you in your local church. So I don't want to talk to them about their local situation first. Like, all right. Hey, mm. if you're so sharp, if you know so well what leadership should be like, then what are you looking for in local leaders? You know, In your city, in your neighborhood, you're, you're part of the city. Uh, what are you looking for in leadership? And that's one of the big things I I seek to deal with in this book is these are the kinds of traits that the risen Christ through the apostle Paul has made very clear should be true of leaders in the local church. And not just once in First Timothy, then it again in Titus 1. <laughs> and throughout the New Testament, it's a very clear composite of the kind of man who should be in team in leading a local church. And to the degree that you're aware of that and informed by Scripture of that, how might you go back first and foremost in your setting? How are you pursuing it in your setting before playing armchair quarterback online? Mm.
0: Yeah, it's so good. That's such an important thing to emphasize. So much of the uh, the way that we think about these issues can be on this national, you know, social media type uh, context or scale, and we neglect the the kind of local lived experience of our own churches and our own relationships. Um, it does seem to me, though, that a lot of the cynicism that we're seeing today related to leadership in the church uh, does relate. Ironically, to the celebrity culture that so often surrounds spiritual leadership. Um, so, how should we think about the intersection of spiritual leadership and authority in a church and that issue of celebrity?
1: Well, I mean, first and foremost, to lean right back into the local thing, um, what we have very clear in the New Testament is speaking into local churches, Crete, Ephesus, Colossae, Rome and uh those are all instances of plurality of leadership and i think that's one of the, that's one of the big emphases of the book and one of the things that i think is is most needing of that fresh emphasis from the new testament today in our local situations uh so so often the, the celebrity stories are a particular leader who is uh, for good reason greatly appreciated and then the status of appreciation rises and rises and rises and and as Americans, or maybe it's just modern people, we are we are conditioned to build up, folks. We we love to help the rise. You know, we 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 booster the rise, you know, we 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 lift the rise, and then we love the fall stories. <laughs> we love we love to rise people up, and then we love to take them down. But uh the rise stories often happen with individuals where the the pastoral calling begins to begins to get subtly. Uh, Turned over in various ways so that the organization, the church, is now serving the rise of this leader and the prominence of this leader, uh, which is often a typical individual, rather than the kind of accountability, the kind of self-humbling that happens in a plural, in a team leadership context, which it's really a team. This team does not exist to boost a single person's personality, ministry, profile celebrity. This team exists, a group of mature men to boost this local church, to serve this local church, not to make a great name of this local church in a certain metro or across the country. It's not about the, the local church's name. It's about the name of Jesus. And it's about serving the needs of this local congregation. And in that co- and in that context, the, uh, the various on-ramps to celebrity, the various flashpoints of boosting celebrity are going to be the things that are not extended to local church pastors or uh, are not received because of that context of team and accountability. And it it hopefully keeps the church right side up instead of being turned upside down, that the church now begins to serve the individual. Rather, the pastors as a team continue to serve and minister to that church.
0: So take us down to the ground level then for your church. You're a pastor at Cities Church. You're one of a number of pastors there. Uh, How have you guys sought to share that influence to fight against the celebrity that could build up? I mean, you've written books, you you go on podcasts like this. So you have a level of influence that even goes beyond your own church. How have you guys very practically worked together to, to mitigate against the dangers that can come with that?
1: The, uh, from the beginning, one thing that this helped us, so let me just give the disclaimer. We're, we're a seven and a half year old church. So, no, no pretense here that we haven't figured out or that we've settled into <laughs> these patterns over long decades. There's all this accumulated wisdom. Uh, however, I, I should give tribute to the our mother church in terms of there was a—we a, we didn't plant ourselves. Uh, Bethlehem Baptist here in Minneapolis planted us seven and a half years ago, and we benefited immensely from Bethlehem's affirmation of faith and patterns and values and a whole generation of ministry. Uh, under John Piper in, in Minneapolis that, that led to the planning of the church. Um, the conviction for us early on that the pastors would be plural and that the pastors would be teachers has had a very significant influence on on us as a church, on that collegiality, on that uh, dynamic of, of being equals as pastors, that we share the teaching. Now, it, at our church, we've gone so far as to share the preaching. Which is a little more extreme or unusual, though I think it's a, a very healthy thing. So we we do team preaching as a conviction, and mm. uh, and and it's we, not just
0: a convenience or a necessity because you know the guy needs a break.
1: No, not at all. That's, in fact, <laughs> our lead pastor Jonathan. I mean, he he tells us regularly he'd like to preach more, but but we're not shaping the church around his preferences, right? <laughs> And he does preach the most often. as As our lead pastor, he preaches most often, but it, it's no more than than half the time. It's typically less than half the time. And and there there are three or four of us that do multiple uh, preaching throughout the year, and others who will who will chime in at, at times. So that's one flashpoint. I wouldn't want it all to come down to that. I don't think that a church is disobedient or unfaithful if they don't have a pretty aggressive team preaching model. But team preaching is is one flashpoint of that kind of parody among the leaders mm-hmm. because especially for protestant churches i think it should be this way and teaching happens throughout the week but that preaching moment on sundays is very significant that's a very influential moment that is a holy stewardship like the the way that paul talks to timothy in second timothy chapter two about preaching the word and being ready in season and out of season that that is a holy moment in the life of the church when The church's mouth is closed. And in modern society, we sit down to hear the preacher who's standing up. It hadn't always been that way, but we hear the the preacher step to the pulpit and he delivers to us. We we know it's imperfect. We know he's a sinner. We know he's not perfect, but he delivers to us a word from God, from God's word. And uh, that is a very important moment in life in the church. And when a preacher does that well, time after time, year after year, he gains for himself, so to speak, a great amount of influence in the church. And uh, not only is that offset by multiple preachers gaining the congregation's trust over time, but also I hope that the teaching over time is more healthy, more balanced, more proportional for the people because the idiosyncrasies of any of us—I mm. <laughs> got mine. Jonathan's got his. Joe's got his. Kenny's got his. None of our idiosyncrasies, I hope, are quite as pronounced in the overall flavor of the preaching because we're checking each other and we're doing that as a team.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned, you know, the sermon as this incredibly influential and, and dare I say, powerful. Uh, expression of the leadership of the the spiritual leaders of the church, and that I think that probably would ring true with most people listening right now. That you know what the pastor says on a Sunday morning from the pulpit, that really does set the trajectory for the church in a lot of ways, and it ties into this other hot button topic that relates to the issue of celebrity and authority. And, th- and that is just the idea of power in general. Mm-hmm. Who has the power? How is it wielded in a context? Is it formal or even informal power? And so I-, I just wonder, could you speak to that? How should a pastor think about his power in the context of a church?
1: Mm-hmm. Next, that's a really important question. And uh, my own sense or guess on that is that many pastors, like most pastors, the rank and file, these are the guys that nobody's writing a story about because they're just faithful. They love their Bible. They read their Bible. They teach their Bible faithfully. They make decisions that uh, are difficult for them personally and benefit their congregation. These are just good pastors. Most pastors are like this. And uh, that kind of pastor looks at himself in the mirror and he doesn't think, well, I got a lot of power. I got a lot of influence. He's aware of his failures. He's aware of the many things that don't go his way that he wishes would go his way. Mm. And I think that power, that that pastor probably doesn't understand how great his influence is in the congregation. So there are some pastors who are, they are arrogant, conceited, they're swollen with pride, and they tell themselves they have more power than they do, and they're angling for more power. They love to have power and have their big decisions and whims catered to by other people. There are some people like that. That's a shame. It's immature, potentially evil. But many pastors, I think, don't know how much influence they have in their local congregation. They don't think about, oh, I'm, I'm an officer. And just to formally be called pastor here and to have the vote of the congregation without the support of the, you know, to be official, however that is in the different polities, whoever made you official, officially, uh, you, you're an officer there. We call it officer for a reason, because that, that's an official leader. So there's there is power in that sense tied to the office. Then also, the very nature of the Christian faith as a teaching movement. Jesus as the consummate teacher. The way the church grows is through teaching. The, the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, are the very heart of what it means to be a Christian church. So Christianity is a teaching movement. And those who teach well gain influence. In the church, because the church is a teaching movement. And so good teachers who are official and they teach regularly and do so faithfully, if they're good teachers, if they're effective, then they gain influence with that. And the other thing is, if the church is being, I think, the the full uh, expression of a New Testament church, a local church, having a plurality of leadership, now you have a pooling of power you have officers, elders, pastors, you have this group is, they're not just governors who make decisions. This group is also the best teachers in the church. So whatever that is, three guys, five guys at our church, we have 10 pastors. And I think it'd be fair to say, uh, these 10 pastors, they're all official. Like they have a congregational vote saying, you are official, officially a pastor elder. And by and large, for the most part, these are the 10 most gifted teachers in the church. And Christianity is a teaching faith. And those men are friends, they're on a council together, they're elders, they're pastors together. So there's the pulling of their power. And I think in light of that, many pastors don't, humble pastors, don't realize how influential they are in their local church. And these are the I, I want to help guys be aware of this. Pastors be aware of this. That in light of those things and other realities, you have more influence probably than you think. If you're a decent, humble, modest pastor, you probably have more influence than you're constantly aware of, and it's probably good that you not be aware of it often. But there also are times that, for us to remind each other: say, "All right, brothers, let this—you know—remember here we're the teachers." Where the officers <laughs> and and we pulled our power here as in a plurality, and so we need to make sure that we are leveraging this for the good of this body. This is not for our personal convenience. This this is a danger for pluralities, for any group. You now you hear about the uh, the boys' club or whatever it would be these, these different right you know, right that that a group would begin to have a spirit where its decisions would subtly serve the comfort of that group to the detriment of the group it's supposed to serve and what we are called to do as pastors in the church keep each other accountable keep ourselves laid bare before God and his word we want to make collective decisions as pastors that often are more costly for us personally because it's better for the church and I I think most pastors who have done this for a while would know that you often come to junctures in difficult decisions. And one way to cast the fork in the road is, well, this, this way would be better for the church, but this way would be easier for us. And it is so important at those junctures that the pastors together say, we are called to do this for the joy of the church. And part of being a spiritual leader is that we're taking on more burdens. We're taking on often the harder option rather than the easier one to serve the needs of this flock and it's good in Christ Jesus.
0: Hmm. A minute ago, you mentioned scripture and, and even the conversation about the, the priority of teaching for elders and pastors in a church, uh, kind of the question is teaching what? And I think as Protestants, we would say teaching scripture and we would embrace the idea of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the ultimate authority for us in our lives and what we believe about God. How how does a pastor's authority or power in the context of his church relate to the Bible's authority? And maybe to kind of put a more fine point on it, does a pastor need a Bible verse to back up everything that he might wanna say in a church or every bit of counsel or advice he'd wanna give to somebody is it always have to have a Bible verse attached to it because that's where all the power lies?
1: Ooh, good question. Um, so two different things. I, let me go to the the last part of the question first. Uh, a danger to beware is when you make and as a pastor, as pastors together, uh, when you're advocating for a certain, certain direction, which is it's a manifestation of wisdom. It's seeking to navigate circumstances. It's a, it's a prudent, it's prudential, you know. This is is not a one-for-one obedience to a particular verse. You should be aware of putting a verse with it because later on when you you change on that, you know, you go a different direction. Uh, It's wise to not make our people think that uh, this is one-for-one obedience to a particular direction. But here's the thing, Matt, it's a tension because we as pastors— we want to be leading with Bible all the time. This is at the heart of our calling. What makes us fit governors of a local church is that we are the Bible guys. We got to know the Bible backwards and forwards. We got to be the kind of men who, when we get together, we talk about, hey, I saw this in this verse this morning. Did you ever know that? We text each other about, did you see this in 2 Timothy 2, 24? Have you ever thought about that? To one thing I have to know, we're Bible-saturated men who make that be explicit talk of our conversations and as we lead the church. So if that's in counseling appointments and it's in community groups, that's in Sunday school classes, that's from the pulpit, that's throughout the service. We want to be scripture saturated. We want to be constantly throwing our pebbles of Bible influence, teaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, throwing our pebbles in the water to create, to create ripples. So we want to be those kind of men that our people would think we, we do the Bible here. We love the Bible here. In community group, I pick up an insight. In the welcome, I pick up an insight. In a conversation, I pick up an insight. The whole Bible is more alive and makes more sense and is more real in my life because this group of men just teaches all the time. They love to teach, and it seems so real. So we have that on the one hand, and we do want to put verses on stuff. <laughs> we want to give a seal. We want to give a banner. Uh, we want to you know, put a verse on the top of a paper where we make a case. And at the same time, be very careful that we not put a text on everything. as a kind of proof text that on the one hand, congregation, do this, approve this, you know, (laughs) don't raise any questions about this because I got a a verse in parentheses. Um, That would be, I think, unwise and will erode the pastor's trust capital over time as, as Bible teachers and as leaders of the church.
0: So, so another uh, a big emphasis that you often see in maybe more conservative quarters when it comes to thinking about what it means to be um, a godly man, but then even more specifically a godly leader in the context of a church, is the idea of strength. Uh, mm. Men being strong and courageous and willing to stand up for the truth and what is right. Uh, and But in a chapter you have uh, about The idea of sober-mindedness and why that's an important quality for a pastor, you write, pastors should not be preoccupied with fighting, but with the faith, even if that takes some occasional combat. And I think that raises that issue of maybe a definition of strength, but also of the willingness that a pastor should have to actually fight, to stand up for things that he thinks are right or wrong, even uh, when it's unpopular. Uh, whether that's false teaching or immorality or injustice of some kind, uh, what would you say to that? Should pastors be willing to take stands on some of those issues in a public way? And if so, when and how do, should they do that?
1: That's good. I mean, Matt, that's a question of our time uh, in, in many ways. Not the question, but a question of our time. And there's there's a nexus of issues right there. So one of them is the elder qualification of sober-mindedness, which is something like balance or spiritual EQ of making the, of making the decision. So I, I think it'd be, it would be like this, whereas the ability to teach, you know, being apt to teach or prone to teach gets at that teaching aspect of local church pastors and elders. The sober-mindedness uh, kind of extends toward the governing, toward the leading of the church. So We don't want imbalanced extremists who are leading the church You know this way and that way and do this extreme thing, that extreme thing. We, we, want, we want balanced men who can take in, and this this is together in the context of plurality, a group of sober minded men who can take in the various aspects and make those, those are difficult decisions. There's not an answer to prescribe ahead of time that a church should always take up the next battle, <laughs> move from one battle to the next, or never take up a battle and always seek for peace and say, peace, peace when there, when there is no peace. So there's the, there's the sober-mindedness angle. Another one, then, is just the very nature of teaching. Uh, Paul says in, second, in second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.4 about preaching that we should do it with complete patience and teaching. Patience and teaching go together. A teacher doesn't roll into a room and give a final exam. A teacher comes into a room and teaches day after day, week after week. There may There's going to be a final exam a few months from now. But a teacher with patience brings the people along. The very nature of teaching is it's not just a quick dictate. Teaching takes patience. And so the teachers of the church need to be patient, they need to be patient to bring others along. And the point of contrast is really interesting between the false teachers in Ephesus, as Paul writes the pastoral epistles to Timothy, the, the false teachers have a, uh, they are known for quarrelsomeness. And Paul wants to confront that with teaching. He wants the elders of the church, the true leaders, to teach the correct error. They do it with patience. They have a view to doing it over time. Instead of just entering in and giving their quick opinion and saying the provocative word and blowing things up and setting people off on a different course and upsetting folks with quarrelsomeness, they, he wants them to teach. So there's a, There's this confrontation here as the battle lines are drawn between teachers. There are the true teachers who are patient and teach, and the false teachers are quarrelsome, Hmm. irrelevant myths, irrelevant babble he talks about and warns about. And that's something for us to consider as as pastors and elders who are very comfortable issuing public words. (laughs) We've practiced this over years. We're used to teaching. We're used to sermons. We're used to coming up with words on the fly. And so that can serve quarrelsome purposes. We might just like to talk and like to have people affected when we speak. And quarrelsomeness can be an avenue in which uh, a pastor, heaven forbid just enjoys speaking his voice in public and having others respond to it. And so that's a, a danger to beware.
0: Would you say it's possible for a pastor to be right but still
1: quarrelsome? Oh, yeah. All, all the time. <laughs> part of the danger right? is, is uh, yeah. he studied the Bible deeply. And he knows he's he's right for the most part on this issue, but yet he's abandoned the calling of a teacher by just blowing things up, by poking with the right answer instead of patiently bringing people along. And now, you know, hmm. one more thing to say, you got to know your context, you got to know your timing. I I do think this whole pretense of the world interacting with the world online and reducing time, reducing locality, uh, is creating all sorts of fog and confusion for people, uh, so important in getting a sense of timing and proportion in leading a church and knowing, you know, when do we patiently move on here? when do we go after for, when do we have a particular conversation with somebody about their them being a problem in our church when do we launch a sermon series on this topic so much of that needs to be tied to locality because hmm. for instance it, it, just an example from minnesota minnesota is a very simple state in some ways in that you have the the twin cities of st paul which are very urban minneapolis st paul very urban And then you get a little bit outside the metro and then you have what's called (laughs) outstate, which is largely (laughs) rural and small town. And so there was a really big divide in in the last presidential election. And over time where there has been more and more a sense in, in the urban areas in a certain field and the rural areas are different and the divisions are more between city and country rather than between states. And so you can drive a few miles and find a and find a very different feel and different need between a city church and what the temptations are in downtown St. Paul versus two hours north where my wife is from and what the temptations are there. You know, what sins need to be spoken with with particular clarity two hours north of us versus what is making incursions in the church and among Christians in the urban setting. And so Social media flattens all that out, but <laughs> we need to really have a clear sense of where we are, what our calling is, and then that relates to the timing of these things. Um, often, m- many times, quarrelsomeness has a timing problem. There's a lack of patience, and there is uh, a sense of, th- there could be the sense for the person who's being quarrelsome is, I just want to be right about this, and I want to be right first. I'd like to. I'd like to be right about this before somebody else gets this right. And so, without a sense of patience and a sense of timing, I'm going to rush to get this out there as quick as possible. Abandon abandon the patience of teaching. Uh, unhook this from my locality, and uh, I think that is particularly something for us to to be aware of and and be warned of in our day. Mm.
0: Maybe the last couple of questions, David. Um, I wonder if you could uh, speak to the question of how. Leaders should be led themselves. You make the case in the book that leadership itself, uh, that following a leader is good for us as humans, that we were made to follow, in a very real sense, and that that is uh, healthy for us. That's God's design for us. How does that apply to the pastor or the leader, uh, who? Uh, I'm mean, thinking of maybe a congregational type church like yours, where you're not a part of a, a broader denominational structure, where the pastors are accountable to. Uh, maybe a bishop or someone else so who are the the leaders following
1: that's good the uh the first page of the book this is dedicated to the saints of cities church uh, and then I've got Luke 10 20 as the banner over the ver- over the book do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you in other words, don't rejoice in your ministry don't rejoice in your leadership but rejoice that your names are written. In heaven, so uh, I think it's very important for the spiritual leader that first and foremost, years before he became a spiritual leader, he has been grounded in. He identifies first and foremost as sheep, not shepherd. That he really truly rejoices that his name is written in heaven, and this and this is so important in our day to have this uh, to get this understanding. I mean, the New Testament is very clear about this. I mean, the driving reality is having our names written in heaven. Being a Christian is, I think, ten thousand times more important than being a pastor or minister or missionary or anything we do in ministry. So, having that sense of first and foremost as a believer before my God, there's a kind of accountability before jesus in knowing him in knowing knowing the joy there is in knowing him enjoying him having the holy spirit's power and not grieving by not grieving the holy spirit i do think the most fundamental accountability is the pastor before his god rightly appropriating the gospel the scripture the lordship of jesus and then in that having the kind of maturity and his feet underneath him To then be part of a team that would lead in a local church so first and foremost it's the christian by the spirit before christ and that's going to be manifest through the scriptures and there is and this is i think one reason we ask the accountability question this is why plurality uh is, is such an important reality why jesus may have chosen to do it this way in local churches that there be real on the ground accountability guys that are equal, even as as one of the pastors, I think it's inevitable. Somebody's at least gonna function as chief among the equals. Somebody's gonna carry that burden, that mantle as as lead pastor, as buckstoffer, as the one who's shouldering that responsibility. Uh it's gonna be formal or functional, I think. Uh but that's a team of equals. And there's real accountability among those brothers. If it's three brothers, if it's ten brothers, when it gets to be twenty or thirty, that's It gets a little more unwieldy and the lines of communication are many, but uh, to have real accountability manifest in those fellow elders who would help remind each other, brother, the most important thing is that you are saved that you're in Christ. If, If you need to get out of the ministry for the sake of your soul, That is 10,000 times more important. Don't try to preserve this ministry. It's not about this ministry. You're just serving as one little piece with a team under the risen Christ who's doing this building his church all over the globe. You are so tiny and small. And the most important thing for you is that your name is written in the book of life. Cling to that. Hold fast to that. And part of that goes back to how we speak to our children, how we speak to teenagers, how we speak to college students, how we prepare them for the church, uh, in for seminary guys. But, hey, this calling, and there can be a lot at stake in this calling when you do years of formal study to prepare for vocational ministry. And the pastor begins to think, well, I'm only trained to do this. <laughs> that, that That's an obstacle yeah. to overcome. Uh You being a Christian is far more important, and if you need to step away from the ministry or uh, expose some sin that you would be away from the ministry, you need to do that. So the first and foremost, the accountability is before Christ, and not just a dutiful sense, but a kind of accountability before Christ that is compelled by joy. I don't want to live apart from the joy of being close to Jesus, seeing Him in His Word, having the help of the Holy Spirit to see him, to know him and enjoy him and be held accountable by these brothers who would speak into my life uh, as equals as well. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So often we hear the phrase, you know, a person's highest calling, it would be to pastoral ministry. I've heard that many Mm -hmm. times. You hear that in seminary contexts fairly often. Uh, And if it's not said, then it's sometimes even just implicit. But it seems like what you're kind of saying is that we need to to rephrase that and and mean it a, a person's highest calling is to be a Christian mm-hmm. and right. that, that that is in, in so many ways more important than uh, even a, a, a role of leadership in uh, God's church
1: I think it's it's probably often come from a good motivation um where because of the supremacy of Christ you know because Jesus is the greatest treasure he's the Lord he's savior. Uh, we might think, oh, we know, his his servants have this exalted role, and they're uh, the role that the gift of leaders in the church is significant. We talked about that that the importance of teaching and of that preaching moment in the life of the church. But sometimes, for ministers, for pastors, for elders, they can begin to get their own identity bound up in that. We need to think far less of ourselves, far more of Christ, of His structures, and know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can come and go <laughs> as pastors. And the and most important is that we are in Christ and happy in Him. Mm.
0: Well, David, thank you so much for helping us to think through this. Uh, these difficult at times, uh, controversial, but important questions about uh, what it means uh, to lead in a church, what that authority should look like, how it should be exercised. Uh, these conversations are more important now than than ever before, so uh, we appreciate the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Matt. So good to talk to you, brother.
0: That was David Mathis on Spiritual Authority and the Church. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. Pick up your copy of the print book for 30% off or the audiobook or ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review and helping us spread the word about the show.